0: Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshiping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Good morning everyone. We have been um, in a study of Isaiah 53. We kind of have been back and forth. I Honestly, this is our ninth. <clears throat> this is our ninth installment in uh, this with this passage, but uh, I know we kind of started this in June, June, July. No, June. We couldn't have gotten that many in since July. <laughs> um, and I have just been enjoying myself uh, going through this passage. If you are visiting or you're just back from having enjoyed all that cool weather in the north while we were here suffering in the, in the home front, <laughs> um, just to let you know, we are studying the uh, 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And... Um, If you want to catch up with what's going on, uh, uh, and you forgot that there's a webpage with all our stuff on there, uh, just go to our webpage, uh, and uh, you'll find the sermons uh, posted there, or uh, on uh, Spotify, I think on Spotify, where it's just International Christian Assembly. And uh, you can catch up on the messages on Isaiah 53. One commentator said of this passage, words collapse under the weight of this chapter. We honestly just, for the sake of time, I think, which seems to drive my motivation more than I wish... We don't say all that we really want to on a given Sunday on the matter. And today will be no exception. Having had communion, you know, you wanna I know you guys have reservations somewhere, and so I don't want you to be late and lose your table on my account. So we'll have to go through this rather quickly. It is a weighty portion of scripture, so full, so dense, and such a clear, detailed. Presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his intercession, that it transcends any other passage in the Old Testament. When you consider the miraculous fact that it was written, penned by a prophet, inspired by God, 650 plus years Before the coming of Christ, how could he have known such specific details of the event? We began this study in uh, Isaiah 52 because uh, we concluded that uh, verses um, uh, 13, 14, and 15 belong to Isaiah 53. All we can figure is that um, the guys that did the chapter divisions must have been having a rough day that day, and he just kind of cut it in the wrong place or something. And um, But uh, in Isaiah 52, in the first verse that we looked at, which was 13, in that first stanza of the song, um, we learned the nature. We learned... The identity, the person is identified in 52.13. My servant, the Eved, the servant of Yahweh. He will be high and he will be lifted up and greatly exalted. And further studies to that in my, uh, in, for myself, I came to understand it as the same verbs that he used to describe God, the Father, in other parts. But it's specifically in Isaiah chapter 6, where you find Isaiah looking at the throne of God and he says he is high and lifted up. Same verbs. This says to us, That which is said of God, the Father, can also be said of the servant of the Lord. Paul said it this way, that in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his person. Jesus said it this way, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So the servant is identified in the opening verse of the song, by God himself as one who is equal to himself, high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, We ask that you speak to us, enlighten us, feed us, show us, help us to see you in all of your greatness, glory, to see redemption for all that it is worth, and to bear the weight of your spirit upon our hearts as needed. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 52, if we were to continue remembering what we were doing there some months back in verse 14, we see that God introduces him, the servant, as one who will, though exalted and God in nature, he will be humiliated. And this is the humiliation that we see in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, he took on himself the form of a slave. And made in the likeness of man, humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And then in verse 15, very quickly, he says, he will startle many nations. This is a reference to the second coming. When he returns after his death and his resurrection, and God opens this section here in these verses 13 through 15, by predicting and promising the triumph of the Messiah, the servant. And there, in those three verses, we get the entirety of 52, very much summarized. The opening statement says it all, and then he goes into 53 and explains in detail each one of those three verses. The triumph that was and that is yet to be completed. That was our first uh, stanza of uh, this passage. In verses 1 to 3, just to remind you very quickly, we saw him as the shameful servant. That's how they saw him. That's how Israel thought him and thought of him. Uh, and then verses 4 through 6, he was the substituted servant. When they finally realized and confessed, oh no, he died in our place. He died for us. We were the sheep that were gone astray. And now we are in the uh, fourth stanza of this uh, song, verses 7 to 9. We began this the last time that I preached a few weeks back. We began the passage 7 through 9. And uh, here we see him as the quiet servant. You know, he, he, he went to the slaughter, but he opened not his mouth. And we, we focused on that word slaughter and what that, and what that meant. We want to pick that up again. We want to, we want to re, restart the passage there, 7 through 9. We want to remember that the primary purpose of this passage, and here's where most people get confused, and I really want you to focus on this part, The primary part of this passage is not to look at the cross. Though it is a look at the cross, it is not the primary reason for the passage. That's the secondary purpose. The primary purpose of this passage is to look at the final triumph of Messiah, to look at the final triumph of Christ upon his return, at the servant. And what is that final triumph? the salvation of his people Israel. That's what this is all about. Israel will be saved. It was promised in Ezekiel 36 uh, that God would write a new law in their hearts, that God would take out a stony heart and give them a heart of flesh and plant his spirit within them. Repeated to us in Jeremiah 31 as we did just a few minutes ago. And then in Zechariah 12 and 13, it talks about the spirit of grace and supplication that comes upon them, the salvation of the nation of Israel. And Paul describes it in this way in Romans 11, very short, very brief, but very powerful. And all Israel shall be saved. Now, that brings us, as I said, to verses 7 to 9, the quiet servant Part two, the quiet servant. Verse seven of these three verses, seven, eight, and nine. Verse seven, we said, looked at the trial. Each verse seems to focus on one part of his passion life, that moment in his passion. Verse 7 looks at the trial, and we looked at some of those words. Um, He was oppressed, and we explained that word. That means hard-pressed. And the term um, has to do with all of the form of injustice that came upon him at that trial. The injustice of the trial, the pressures of the trial, the treatment, the physical batterment at the trial, and what all of that meant, and the details of it. Then um, we, 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 we sort of learned that the word um, oppressed its repeated in verse 8, but even though they're the same in some of the English versions, they are not in Hebrew. They're actually two separate words. And so it's good that we will make the distinction since we do use the ESV here. Uh, you'll see uh, that he was oppressed, and in verse 8 it says uh, by oppression, but we need to define those two words. Uh, they're different, and uh, where one talks about being hard-pressed, the other one talks about restrain or prison is another word for it. So that brings us to our next uh, point four, which is the point that we continue on. Um, I skipped three, uh, that was a, a sideline. So, verse eight, here we go. In the King James, it says, from, uh, r- from prison or from restraint and judgment, it's how the verse begins. I have verse eight up on the board, please? It's how it begins. In the ESV that we use, it says, by oppression, and then it says, and judgment, he was taken away. And it's a description of how it is that he is taken away. All right? Can, can I have verse 8, please? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now, that word oppression here is a word that is used, uh, that it means prison. It, it, it means restraining, being restrained. And it, it, it's come to him in the injustice of a trial. An unjust trial that brought nothing but oppression resulted in his incarceration. But not for long, obviously. The judgment then is the verdict. The expression. And he was taken away. Simply the fact that he is turned over for execution. He is turned over. For the sentencing. So this is all talking about the legal process. Not, the, not that the actual um, trial was legal, but that it was done by legal sources. Both the rulers of Israel and the representing power of Rome carried out an illegal um, Uh, uh, trial, but they were the legal sources behind it. Therefore, it became legal and binding. So oppression, or in this case, uh, his arrest, his confinement, brought about the judgment. It is the judicial um, proceeding. In other words, this was a legal action. It was was done in a way in which uh, was accepted for all legal terms. So it wasn't, Isaiah isn't just describing that he was, you know, just accidentally killed on the side of the road. He is telling us in advance, there is going to be a procedure that was hard pressed, that was a very illegal trial but done by the legal sources. How, how does he describe all of this? Like I said, more than 650 years before this all takes place. <clears throat> so it says taken away, and that means exactly what it says. Uh, he is taken uh, from the court, from the trial, to be executed. His incarceration wasn't as we. It wasn't that he was put in a prison, it was that he was held back, he was restrained while he was brought about by this, brought into this illegal trial, and after the trial the judgment is passed, and after the judgment is passed, he is then taken away to be executed. Pilate orders his execution the way criminals and slaves were executed, He is the slave of Yahweh, and so he is executed in a slavish fashion by the Roman powers on a cross. He was physically abused in trial in verse 7, and judicially abused by incarceration, by restraining, restrainment, leading to death in verse 8. Verse 8. His death is described in these words. May I have verse 8 again? The the bottom part. There you go. I'll read it. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Very much a a Jewish expression. It appears in a number of places in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16, speaking of the scapegoat. Lamentations 3, where Jeremiah speaks of his own death being cut off. And in Daniel 9, verse 26, perhaps the clearest one of them all, where Daniel, speaking of the Messiah, says, Messiah will be cut off, predicting his death. So he will be executed. And that's what the expression means. Cut off, executed. And in there... In this verse, we want to point out a significant statement because there is a difference between pagan Rome and the Jewish understanding of God's justice. There is. I mean, at the end of the day, if we were to be more biblical about this, Rome identifies itself with the the pagan world, the the world that did not know God. Whereas Israel, well, they were the elect of God. They were the chosen of God. They were the people of God. So they they should do things differently, right? So I want to show you how there is a significant statement here that is worth our attention. Verse 8, as for his generation... Who considered, as for his generation, who considered, that's what you want to underline. Who considered? We'll talk about that for a second. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Meaning, who meditated on? Did anybody stop to, to meditate? The word is meditate there. Who stopped and considered what just took place? Did anybody stop to consider the fact that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Who has stopped to meditate on this arrest and judgment and subsequent execution? Who saw it for what it was? Where was the justice? Where were the disciples? Well, they were actually fulfilling scripture. In Zechariah 13, verse 7, it says, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So they were just, at the end of the day, doing what God already knew they would do. They were long gone, with the exception of two of them. It would required, according to Jewish law, not pagan law, Jewish law, that there be a period of time once a verdict was given for people to step up and speak to the innocence of the one who had been set for execution. I did not know that till I found it in the Talmud. There was basically a 40-day period. And that's what we find in their literature. That's their own words. I'm going to quote it for you in a second. Let me explain what that means. It means that if a reo, and I don't know what the Spanish English word for that is. Reo. The convict, that's it. If a person was convicted to execution, he was to stand first. To hear if someone opposed to that judgment. For 40 days, they were to wait to see if someone would come and claim their innocence. When I read that, I said, now that makes all the sense in the world to me. They're not pagans. They know the justice of God. They would follow something like that. And so when I found that in the Talmud, I said, that makes all the sense in the world. They're not barbarians. That's what they were supposed to do. They should have waited 40 days after the execution or, it's, uh, uh, or the judgments was passed to see if anyone would come and step forward and say, No, he's innocent. Now, you know they didn't do that. Because I could think of a lot of people that would have stepped up and said he was innocent, don't you think? I think the one at the head of the line was the guy that was brought from the dead just a couple of weeks before. And all the people that were healed and all the people that felt his love and heard his teaching and knew that he taught with power, surely some would have said, I don't care what happens to me, I'll step up. Forty days. Let me read to you from the Talmud. These are the words of the Sanhedrin as they put together this statement. After they realized we didn't follow the law, our law, our oral law. We could get in trouble for this. So they then put this into their writings. Sort of, you know, after you break the law, you make a law that says you didn't really make break the law. Politics. Let me read to you from the Talmud B san.43a These are the Sanhedrin's words. That's what San means. There is a tradition on the eve of the Sabbath and the Passover they hung Jesus. And the herald went out forth before him for 40 days crying Jesus Goes to be executed because he has practiced sorcery and seduced Israel and estranged them from God. Let anyone who can bring forth any justifying plea for him come and give information concerning it. But no justifying plea was found for him. And so he was hung on the eve of the Sabbath and the Passover. They're saying that he was judged 40 days before the Passover and as they call it, hung hung on the cross on the eve of the Passover. You see, they despised. They despised everything about Jesus. It ran deep and it still runs deep. It hasn't helped, though, That throughout of our human history, the Jews have been treated by so-called Christians, false Christians, so terribly. Early in the Roman Catholic system, way, way back in the early centuries, there was a poisonous anti-Semitism brought into our existence of Christianity and that Developed and developed through the centuries under Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, and it continues to develop even into the days of the Reformers. This animosity toward the Jews brought about a lot of suffering. Let me, I am, I love history, but I know I'm gonna bore you to death, so I'll be as brief as I can. 1306, excuse me. There are the nine crusades from 1092 to 1303. You think the crusades was only to deal with the Muslim invaders? No, it wasn't. They did a lot of other stuff. 1290, they were expelled from England. 1306 begins the expulsion from France. One that hits home, Spain, 1492, which included Italy because the Spanish crown covered much of Italy at the time through the Aragon crown. In 1536, they were expelled from Portugal in 1891 from Moscow and all over Russia as it continued into the 20th century. Refer we resurfacing again with the Nazi atrocities and this is all attached to Christianity. False forms of Christianity. This old history doesn't help today. No wonder they despise him. Our attitude, folks, our attitude as born-again believers toward Jewish people has to be one of unrestrained love, compassion, and an evangelistic zeal. Because God isn't done with them. Oh, he is not done. He will bring them back. Because he loves them with an everlasting love, as he loves you if you are in Christ. Number five, we come to the burial, verse nine, our last verse to look at this morning. Verse nine, and they made or assigned his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And they made, um, uh, really should be best translated, and some versions do put this in, assigned. They use the word assigned. They assigned his grave with the wicked. It was appointed that he was to die in a tomb with the wicked. Why? Why was his grave assigned with the wicked men? Well, because he died with criminals, did he not? He had one on each side. The ultimate disdain was to leave the body to uh, disintegrate on that cross. And then, after a few days of the body uh, being there, decaying, being eaten by animals, by birds. They would bring the body down and throw it into into the valley of Gehen. And I'll explain that in a minute. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. You know that. He would die on that cross of asphyxiation. They would leave the condemned person there to show to the people, don't mess with Rome. Oh, this is going to happen to you. They would leave them there for the purpose of warning everyone. That was the plan. That was what should have happened. Eventually, they would just take the rotted body down and throw them into the dump, if no one claimed it. It was the Jerusalem city dump, which was called Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. In Scripture, we know it in Mark as Gehenna. It identifies as the place where the worm never dies, according to Mark 9 and Isaiah in the last verse of his book. Jesus said that it's a depiction of hell. It's a horrible place. It was just a city dump where there was a constant fire and they would throw the corpse there. So he was executed with criminals and he would end up like a criminal. That was what was assigned to him. But the verse doesn't say all of that. It doesn't stop right there, does it? But it says, assigned to the wicked, but with a rich man in his death. But God. I love it when I can say, but God. That means he steps in and says, that's not my plan. I have a different plan. But God wasn't going to let that happen. No, because in Psalm 16, there's a prophecy that said he would not allow his Holy One to seek corruption. And so in verse 9, he gives us an amazing turn. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet, instead of that, he was with a rich man in his death. Now, how did that happen? He was with a rich man, that man has a name, his name is Joseph, Joseph from Arimathea. This man, Joseph, became a disciple of Jesus Christ, but he seems to have done it quite quietly, as though we seem to understand that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, at least a Pharisee. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 through 60, we have the account where God says, yeah, now I have another plan for my son. Verse 57 through 60 says, In the evening there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of, the, of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it down... Uh, laid, his own, uh, laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewed out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against, against the entrance to the tomb and went away. And do you know why? Well, I can tell you that it was because it was the eve of the Sabbath... And, uh, you know, he was a rabbi to the people. He was a rabbi, right? The king of the Jews was the sign. And and so they said, uh, we can't leave him there. He's a rabbi. He he can't be hanging on a cross on the Sabbath. Let's get his body down. I, I could tell you that. I could also tell you that Joseph of Arimathea, well, he must have been, you know, He must have been a powerful guy. I mean, he went to Pilate, asked Pilate for something, and Pilate gave it to him. Almost as if to say, listen, dude, you don't give me his body. I am not putting money into your next campaign. And so Pilate said, okay. Well, that tells me that this isn't just anybody. it's a powerful man. So I could tell you that they took his body down because it was the Sabbath. I could tell you they took his body down because Joseph said, no, I'm not going to let him hang there. And I got the power, I can get him off. But what I really need to tell you is because God said, no. No, my son will not see corruption. And I will use all that is within my power to carry about my purposes. That is God, folks. That is what most call coincidences We call it a sovereign movement of God. A testimony. He would not see corruption. He would be buried with the rich because this is a testimony to his sinlessness. Why? How do we know that? Listen to what it says in verse 9. Because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is why God intervenes. Because the sacrifice was perfect. Because he accepted it. Because he said, well done, my good and faithful son. He accepted the sacrifice. Because there was no violence. There was no deceit. Meaning that... He was holy on the outside. He was holy on the inside. There was nothing in his mouth of sinful nature. There was no behavior of his sinful nature. And he showed himself to be willing, like a lamb, quietly to the slaughter. So he opened not his mouth. A testimony to his sinlessness. To its perfection. A testimony by his father. And a very small first step. In his exaltation. The first step to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Was that he was buried with the rich. Not with the sinners. In the city dump. That he would not see corruption. That he would be taken down properly wrapped, and put in a proper grave. The first step to the exaltation. Even before his resurrection, the father said, I will not allow any further humiliation. God honors Jesus in his burial because there was no, no sin inside, no sin outside. And in a few hours, on the third day, he comes out of the grave and eventually ascends all the way up to his full glorification. It's a sweet testimony of the fact that the humiliation was over. It was over. He had humbled himself to the point of death, and that's all that was necessary. His body did not need to see corruption. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to close with this. It's a verse that honestly hasn't in times past been quite puzzling to me. Second Corinthians 5.16, Paul, uh, not... Uh, No time to give you all the context, but uh, it's a very well-known verse because it's right before a very, very well-known verse that says, uh, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, all things become new. Verse 16 has a questionable, what is this about kind of thing. Verse uh, 16 says, from now on, says Paul, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. What does that mean? Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What what did he mean by that? What was he saying? Well, he's a Jew, right? And he knew exactly what Judaism had become and had come to think of Christ. And even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, he says, we have now known Christ the way it was told to us, the way it was perceived to us. I knew him as a man and I had the typical standard rabbi, zealous, passionate, anti-Jesus attitude that the Jews had taught me. And that's what he had Referring what's what he was referring, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no more. Now I know. That's what he's saying. Now I know the truth. He didn't see Christ the way he had always seen him, he saw him differently now. He saw the change. That's why he says we regard men no longer according to the flesh. Meaning those who have come to know Christ. The truth is, folks, when I know, that I meet someone that tells me they're born again. And my spirit bears witness with their spirit that they are children of God. You know what? I don't care what they did in their lifetime. Because I sure hope they don't care what I did in my lifetime. I sure hope it doesn't matter to them where God rescued me from. All that matters is that he rescued us. And that's the person I want to get to know. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, I I regarded him the way I was taught. But now, no longer. No longer in that way. So there is a quiet, slaughtered lamb. Cut off out of the land of the living the transgression of my people. Substitution. We come back to that again in your place where you should have died. What you should have paid. The hell that he felt you should feel. And he chooses to forgive us because we ask. That folks is amazing. Amazing. Every aspect of it is just mind-blowing amazing that he would choose to forgive us for the transgression of my people. Lord, we thank you. We thank you again for the clarity the power of this amazing portion of scripture and we're just scratching the surface lord we know that it's worth coming back in a few years and doing it again because we will never get tired of understanding what it meant for you to leave the throne of heaven To humble yourself. To become human. To become like your creation. In order to save us. We will never tire of that story. We will never tire of its truth. Because by it, Father, we were made children of God. By it. We were brought out of darkness into life. Out of death into life by it father we who were the children of men became the children of God so thank you father for your word and for the clarity of it may it cause us to live a grateful life a life father live for others sacrificing the gospel words into the existence of other hearts, Lord, so that they too may be freed from the punishment of sin. Father, we thank you for your written word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.